Hello again. Just keep Hebrews 8 open there in front of you. Let's pray as we come to look at these wonderful words. Our gracious Father, we thank you again for your living and active word. And we ask that it would now pierce our hearts and minds, that it would show us your truth, and that it would teach us your ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself thinking, just tell me the main point. Now, you know, when you're, maybe you're in a conversation or maybe you're watching something on TV and, and they're just kind of beating around the bush and the things are just dragging on and on and on and they're waffling and you just kind of feel that, that frustration rising within you quietly, slowly until the point where you want to burst and say, just tell me the main point. What are you even talking about? Maybe you're all a bit more patient than me. Uh, maybe you felt that way a little bit with the book of Hebrews. Sometimes you're just feeling like saying, okay, I get all that detail, but, but what's the main point? Well, if that's you, then take heart, because look down at our first verse today. It starts with, now the main point is this. And he summarizes the story so far. So far, Hebrews, he's been showing us that Jesus is our greater and better high priest. That's what we've been seeing in chapter 5, chapter 7. We saw how Jesus, he is greater than the Old Testament priests, the priests of Israel, God's Old Testament people. And they get called the the Levitical priests or the priests in the line or order of Aaron. They were the ones who served in the Jewish tabernacle or the Jewish temple, the, the tent where God's people came to meet with him. That's where God's presence would dwell with his people in the tabernacle. And they, these priests, they were responsible for being the go-between, for ensuring that Israel and unholy people could be made holy and then remain holy so that they could be in relationship with their holy God. But Jesus, he is greater and better because he is a priest par excellence, better than any priest has ever been, more than any of those priests than, than the, of the Old Testament achieving more than they ever achieved. And so because, because if you look at what we saw last week, we saw in chapter 7, verse 26. So have a quick look there. Chapter 7, verse 26. As it was wrapping up, he said, For this is the kind of high priest we need. In order to be saved from our sin, in order to approach God and be right with him, this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, not like them, and exalted above the heavens. Well, if you keep that in mind, this is the kind of high priest we need. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of, being, what, of what he's being said is this, we have this kind of high priest, Jesus. You see, this is the kind of high priest we need. He paints a picture. And then he says, we have that exact high priest, Jesus. We don't need to look elsewhere because we have it all in him. And so in these first six verses of our passage tonight, he shows us how, he reminds us how Jesus is the high priest we need, the better priest. Now we're not going to spend lots of time in these first six verses because he's already said some of these things and we're going to see in the next few chapters, he's going to spell it out more and more and more. 
So these, chapter, these verses, they're like a summary so far, looking back and then looking forward ahead to the rest of the book. Because from chapter 9 onwards, he goes into all this more detail about how Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice, how he wonderfully fulfills all the things that happen in God's temple. So just briefly, how is Jesus greater and better as a high priest? Well, because look at verse 1. As we've seen, Jesus is exalted above the heavens. He sat down at the right hand of God's throne in heaven. And so verse 2, that makes him a minister or a priest of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. See, Jesus is a priest. He's not a priest in the earthly tabernacle, the physical temple in Jerusalem. No, he's a priest in the better tabernacle, better tabernacle, the better temple in heaven itself. Verse 5. He says these things, the tabernacle, the temple, that those physical structures that were in Israel in that day, they're a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The temple in Jerusalem was like a little copy, a mini model of God's throne room in heaven. And that's where Jesus is a priest. For those who know Zoolander, the temple, it's like a center, it's like a temple for ants. It needs to be at least three times the size of that to be like the temple in heaven. If you don't know what that movie is, then please don't worry. You're not, don't worry. Jesus has obtained a more superior ministry. He's ministering in a more superior place, not in an earthly temple, in heaven itself. So look at verse 6. The temple is great, but it's nothing compared to heaven. And because of that, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, superior than the Old Testament priests. Jesus is our better priest in the better temple in heaven. And all of this leads him then to his next topic. It leads him to say in what he says in the rest of verse 6. So look again at verse 6. Because of that, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. See, before he goes on to talk about temples and priests and, and how Jesus is greater and better in all those ways, well, first he wants to show us how Jesus brings a new and better covenant. Jesus is the mediator or the guarantee, said last week, the guarantee of God's new covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is, a, is an agreed relationship. It's like a contracted way of relating together based on promises, based on things that you say you will fulfill. You bind yourself to doing. So think, first of all, of a treaty between two countries. Each country says, I'll give you this much grain a year for this much money, and our army will help your army, and we won't uh, fight each other. We'll live at peace. And then they sign off on the terms. Well, think of a business partnership where, where each person uh, or each company kind of agrees who does what and who gets paid for what, and they shake hands and it's all good. Or marriage is a covenant. One man and one woman enter a public commitment, a legal commitment, a commitment to love each other exclusively and faithfully for life. In the scriptures, God makes covenants with his people. He makes promises and agreements with them. And so here, Hebrews shows us God's new and better covenant with his people. 
So this is our second heading, verse 7 to 13. This is where we're going to focus most of our time today. Uh, Mainly because of just how wonderful these words are. These are the verses that show us that God's promise of a new covenant from long ago, they show us how this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the one who makes it happen. So come with me. I want you to see the beauty of these verses for yourself. So if you look in your Bible now, you might see that most of these verses in this section, they're a quote from the Old Testament. They might be set out a bit differently in your Bible. They might be bold or kind of slightly indented. And that's because it's a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, which we read just before our Old Testament reading. And Jeremiah 31 is just one of those need-to-know Bible passages to understand the whole Bible. Passages like Genesis 1 to 3, or Genesis 12, or 2 Samuel 7, or Romans 3, Jeremiah 31 is up there with them. Those foundation passages of God's word. And so if you don't know any of those passages, or you don't know this one in Jeremiah 31, well, that might be a sign that you have some growing to do as a Christian, like we thought about a few weeks ago in chapter 5 and 6. If that's you, then, then why not get your hands on this book? God's big picture. We can give you a copy. We can lend you a copy. God's big picture. Or even better, uh, do our More College Intro to the Bible course, which we're going to be uh, running here later on in the year. We encourage everyone to do that course so that you can have a handle on the key parts of God's Word and how it all fits together. Let us know if you want to grow in that and we'll help you. Jeremiah is that key passage where God promises a new covenant a new agreement, a new relationship with his people. And the first thing that Hebrew says, that God says here, is that the new covenant will not be like the old. So look at verse 8 with me. These are God's words spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is a few hundred years before Jesus. Verse 8, God says, Look, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's all of God's people. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when? On the day when I took them by their hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying when God brought about the exodus, When God did his amazing act of saving his people, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, all several million of them, he brought them out. He sent plagues on Egypt to judge them and to release his people. And then God parted the Red Sea. It actually happened, by the way. That's a miracle recorded in the Bible for us. The, The Red Sea was parted and Israel walked through and then it swept their enemies away. That's when he made his covenant with them. With with Moses leading them, he brought them to Mount Sinai. He brought them to to himself and he said, Here is my law. Here is my covenant with you. I've saved you. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will love you. And here are the things that you must do to love me and live according to my ways. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and he gave them the rest of his law. That's the old covenant that this here is talking about. But there was a problem with that covenant. The problem was not so much with the covenant itself. It wasn't, wasn't with God. He mightily saved them. There was, and there was nothing wrong with God's law. His ways are good and just. The problem was with them. 
with Israel. Look at verse 8. Hebrews says, but finding fault with his people, Israel. Well, look at what God says at the end of verse 9. I disregarded them, says the Lord. He, he judged them. He sent their enemies against them. He sent them off into exile. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant. The problem was their sin. They didn't love God or live his ways. And for hundreds of years, that's the repeated story of the Old Testament. They broke the covenant time and time again. And so God, he would have been within his rights to give up on Israel. To say to them, okay, I'm not the God of Israel anymore because you don't want me. He could have done that and been holy and righteous. But he didn't. Instead, he was gracious. He he was merciful. And he promised to fix the problem. He promised a new covenant, one that would work. And here in Jeremiah, or as it's written here in Hebrews for us, this new covenant has three promises. These are the better promises that Hebrews is talking about, the better promises of the better new covenant. And these are these, these three incredible promises that mean that the old covenant is not like the new. The new is better than the old. So we're going to look at each one in turn. In the first promise, God says this, I will write my law on their hearts. Look at verse 10. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What's he promising? God's promising that instead of the law being written on tablets of stone or on a paper scroll, that's how they received God's law. No, instead of being written like that, God's law will be written on their hearts. See, his will and his ways will not be written outside of them for them to kind of understand and and try to obey. His law, his ways will be written inside them. That is, they will know and understand his will and his ways. And their hearts will desire, will want to do what he asks us to do. In the old covenant, their sinful hearts were the problem. In the new covenant, God promises a changed heart. He promises a new heart that truly loves him and truly loves his ways. So he will be their God and they will be his people. Everything will be in its right place. The relationship will work. They will treat him as he deserves. He will remain faithful to them always. This is what Jesus has achieved for us. This promise is fulfilled in him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks about this promise in 2 Corinthians. He says this, It is clear that you, you Christians, that you are Christ's letter produced by us. So as they preached the gospel, people became Christians. And so he said, you are Christ's letter, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. He says, it's the risen Jesus who sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts. By the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus writes his law onto our hearts. 
We are dead in sin. We don't want anything to do with God. We would ignore him left to our own devices. But then we hear the gospel. We hear the message of Jesus' life-giving death. And we are born again. He brings us to new life. We repent, we believe, and we have a new heart from that point on that wants to live God's ways and love him. Yes, we still struggle with sin, and we will until Jesus returns, but God has changed our hearts. The Spirit sanctifies us over time and makes us more and more like the image of Jesus. Jesus sends his Spirit to do this, to write his law, his good ways onto our hearts. Jesus fulfills this promise. He brings the new covenant. That's the first promise. In the second promise, God says this, all my people will know me. Look at verse 11. This one's slightly more obscure. He says, and each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. You see, what was one of the big problems with, uh, with Israel and the Old Covenant? Well, there would be one faithful generation of people who worshipped God, but then they would die out, and the next generation wouldn't even know that God was their God. They would forget to teach their kids about God and know him. Or they'd just get busy with life and ignore him and forget him entirely. See, this is one of the ways that the Old Covenant is different to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people, all those who are ethnically Israel. But at any given time, only, only some of them, only part of them were believers who actually worshipped God. They kept forgetting him, many of them. And so they had to be reminded all the time, hey guys, Yahweh, remember him, he's your God. He's the God of Israel. Don't go and worship Baal. Don't go and worship Asherah. Know the Lord. He is Israel's God. But in the new covenant, God's people are who? God's people are those people who trust in his son, both Jew and Gentile together, united. And so if you trust in Jesus, you are part of the new covenant and you know God. You don't need to be told to know God because you do know him. You've heard the gospel and you've responded. You love him. You live for him. That's what being a Christian is. That doesn't mean there's no place for learning and teaching and growing. That doesn't mean that we aren't forgetful of God at times. But there's no such thing as a new covenant member, as a genuine Christian who doesn't know God. If you think you're a Christian, but then you completely forget God, well, then you're not a Christian. You need to become a Christian, and then you know God. And again... It's Jesus who fulfills this promise for us, who makes it happen. He brings God's new covenant. Because look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14 on the screen. Jesus says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on you do know him, and you have seen him. The one who has seen me has seen God the Father. God promises they will all know me. All the people in my new covenant. Jesus says, I'm the one who makes God known. Know me and you know God. That's the second promise. And then God says the best promise for last. In the third promise, he says, I will forgive their sin. Have a look at verse 12. 
Notice he starts with four. Why does he say four? He says four because uh, this promise is the basis of all the other promises. This is the heart of the new covenant and the new promises of God. This is how they will all know me, he says. This is how I can write my law on their hearts. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. After all that Israel had done, after all their rebellion, after he was patient with them as they turned away from him over and over again, after he punished them and they still didn't turn and still didn't learn, he still chooses to be merciful. How much does it take for you to stop being merciful? God has endured far more than that. He promises yet again to be merciful towards his people's sin, to, to turn aside his just and righteous anger, to relent from his punishment. He promises, did you see it, never again to remember their sins. How much do we remember the sins done to us? Or how much do we remember the sins, the grave sins that we know we have done? The things that we just keep thinking about. The things we are ashamed of. God, the all-knowing one. God, the one who is perfect in holiness, remembers his people's sin no more. He doesn't consider them. He doesn't, he doesn't mull on. He doesn't stew on our sin. It doesn't bother him anymore. He doesn't count it against us in any way ever. How can he do that? I hope you know that Jesus once again fulfills this promise for us. He brings the new covenant. How? By his blood. By giving his very life. Do you remember those words Jesus spoke at the Last Supper? The last meal that Jesus had before he was betrayed and crucified, he was sitting with his disciples and he used these symbols to talk about his coming death and what it means. Have a listen to Matthew 26 on the screen. Don't grow tired of these words. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant, the new covenant. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. How does he bring about God's new covenant? Well, it's by his blood. It's through his death. It's his high priestly sacrifice of himself that pays for our sin that wins our forgiveness. It's this forgiveness that means we can know God. It's this forgiveness that means his law is written on our hearts. It's the cross that brings about God's new and better promises, his new and better covenant. Do you see his big point? What God has promised through Jeremiah, Jesus has done. Jesus is the guarantee of the new and better covenant. He's the mediator of this new and better covenant. He's the one who's going to make it happen. He has made it happen. And it's all ours because of him. And so then, 
Hebrews gives us this conclusion in verse 13. Look there. It says, By saying a new covenant, God has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. And then he goes on for those next few chapters, chapter 9 and on, spelling out the old and the new, and spelling out even more how Jesus is greater and better than the old covenant. Let's bring it together and think about how we respond to such wonderful promises, such wonderful fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. We need to respond, I think, in two ways. Number one, if the first covenant is old, don't go back to it. That's his point, isn't it? Think about it for a second. How hard would it have been for these Jewish Christians to to receive the good news of the gospel, but then to have, have... have to work out, well, we've had the old covenant drilled into us for all of our lives since we were babies. How hard would it have been for them to stand up to the pressure of, of family and friends who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and said to them, how are you betraying us? Why are you betraying your family? Why are you betraying your religion and following this Jesus guy? That's why they needed to know these things. That's why Hebrews is saying, stick with Jesus, guys. He brings the new covenant. Now, our problem as Gentiles, as non-Jews, is, is not really wanting to go back to the old covenant, is it? No one has asked me recently to have a lamb sacrificed for them on an altar. Um, I've never done that. That would probably be a little bit gross. Uh, but actually, so, so it's not really our problem, is it? Often. But actually, sadly, sometimes there are some of us who are led astray by religion that looks more old covenant that looks more like the Old Testament religion, but in fact is not at all what Jesus wants or desires. We've got to be wary of that in ourselves and in each other. And in the coming weeks, we we might think more about those dangers, the danger of outward religion and some of the dangers of Roman Catholic teaching or or of other things that, that people say when they claim to be Christian. See, don't be led astray by religion that might look more outward and holy and sacred. It's guaranteed to lead you away from Jesus, not to him. And the scriptures have so much to say about that. But maybe for most of us, that's not our issue. And Hebrews simply here encourages us not to go back to our pre-Christ life, whatever that looked like. And as we think about and remember the wonder of the new covenant God has made with us, well, we should think, why would we ever want to go back to our old life? No, stick with Jesus, Hebrews says again. We don't need to look elsewhere. We have it all in him. So number one, don't go back to the old. But number two, rejoice in the new. We should rejoice in the new covenant that God has promised and that Jesus has fulfilled. Isn't that the big takeaway from this passage? Take joy in the fact that you trust in Jesus. Turn to him today if you don't. If you trust in Jesus, then you are part of God's new covenant. This is the agreement. This is the relationship that he has brought about for you. A new covenant, a relationship of love, of grace that he has with you and with all your fellow believers. Rejoice that he has given you a new heart, that Jesus has sent his spirit to write God's law on your heart, to cause you to love him and to love his ways. Rejoice that the spirit is shaping you, little by little, more and more, 
to be like Jesus. Rejoice that you know the God of all creation along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoice that it's all possible because of the blood of Jesus. Because through his death, God is merciful to us. He will never remember our sins again. Don't go back to the old covenant, he says. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in the high priest we need who stands in heaven for us. Rejoice in him, the guarantee, the mediator of a new and better covenant. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your incredible promises. Promises to do what we don't deserve. Promises to be in relationship with us. Promises to love us though we are unlovable. Father, we thank you that you pour out your grace and mercy on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That all your promises are fulfilled in him. And we praise you that we have this new covenant, this new relationship with you. Brought about in your good timing and plans. And achieved by your son at the cross. We thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.